you are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper. I'm interested. And mm. so uh, we live in a time where if we're interested in something, we can just do it. Like there's not really anything in our way. Yeah. Even though it's not a linear A Except to B our own success. Internal barriers. Right. Yeah. Which uh, I assume we'll talk about today. Yeah. So anyway, good to see you, man. Yeah. I'm happy to have you on the show. Definitely. So the the you know the conversations for change topic for me is really about the the kind of magic that exists in this interpersonal space between human beings and that uh, from where I sit we're just scratching the surface hmm. you know we, we we're just starting to figure out what it is and what it can be and uh, I know you're doing a lot of work around that so I'm happy to have you here and. Um, uh, maybe I'll just ask you to start any thoughts you have on, on the interpersonal space. And then I'd love to get into some personal stuff and also kind of work and maybe be bigger picture humanity stuff. Hmm. So what do you, what do you think of, of communication in general? <laughs> <laughs> it's a broad question. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <sighs> I think, I think it's what I was born to be a part of, you know, I think I was born to be a communicator develop my communication, teach other people. And I realized like growing up, I really, I struggled with it because no one really role modeled to me. No one showed me. And I really struggled because I was also quite emotionally sensitive. So the communications I was having with my parents and my siblings and my friends and my teachers, everybody was really emotionally stimulating. And I just was kind of always stuck in a triggered state most of the time. So you know, becoming an adult and being like, oh my gosh, there's all these tools. There's actually ways you can communicate. And as soon as I implement them, dramatically changing how I actually feel day to day. When you were younger, what, what sort of, you know, I think of it when we don't have that kind of modeling and when we're not getting our needs met, human beings are very innovative. We find solutions. You know, these solutions may not be functional or, or practical or, or healthy, but we do find them. So for you as a emotionally sensitive person living in a context that maybe wasn't giving you some of the uh, understandings and tools you needed, what, what did you go to, to kind of cope? Yeah. I mean, I call those coping mechanisms. And for me, it's, it's important to acknowledge that we do come from like a systemic colonial world where there is a certain consciousness that has really pervaded all the systems that we have today. And I really feel like I, I really try to look back and I see my life, like how has living in a colonial world impacted me and kind of I've had to build these coping mechanisms in order to survive. Um, and there's a few of them. There's a lot of, lot of huge ones. I'd say my, my most primary one that is connected to relationships is the fact that um, you know, being left as a three-year-old boy for my mother really had a big impact on me. And as you can imagine, as anyone could imagine, like the overwhelming kind of sadness and confusion that I felt as a little boy, I had to build something. I had to create some kind of internal way of handling and dealing with it. And I think that was the birth of my emotionally avoidant and keeping people at arm's length mechanism and that's pervaded through the majority of my life and even to this day in the past five years like 
really working hard at building the communication skills, going right to that core wound and revisiting it over and over again, being held with care and love, you know, healing that, that trauma. And um, also looking at some of the, the colonial systemic components. And I think the combination of those three things has I've just made leaps and bounds. Now, obviously, I still have some room to go, <laughs> but I feel like I'm actually capable of falling in love. Mm. And that's something that is just entrenched in my nervous system. Like, that's, you shouldn't do that. Mm. Like, that's dangerous. Death. Yeah. 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 I, I like how you're speaking about it um, because. I think too often we we can come to a place where we recognize things are not good, things are painful. We start to recognize we're repeating old patterns, painful mm-hmm. ones often, and and we want something to fix it. We want the tools to fix it. Mm-hmm. And where the f- tools can help, there's still the, the fundamental healing that's yeah. needed for those patterns to really be different than they are. Mm-hmm. And if we just add tools and we don't do the healing, uh, the analogy I often use is it's like we're in a house and the foundation's all messed up and we're busy m- moving the furniture around. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but, you know, first things first. And, um, yeah, I think that's the, the great equalizer is that no one is free from trauma. We, we all yeah. experience it to some degree in some way. And there's only one way for that to come together and, and really be healed, and that's to feel it all. Mm-hmm. And to be, I think, held in care mm. while you're feeling it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I look at, like, relationships today and even, you know, looking on my own, but also holding a lot of empathy space for a lot of other people and seeing one of the things that I've always felt really, um, it's like a tragedy of our today world is when two people meet, let's say, let's use a romantic as a context, and they have really great chemistry. Like they're really, really good and they really genuinely fall in love. And it's like, that's how, that can be hard to find. And yet, even though all those dynamics are there because they haven't been brought up, they haven't given the tools to really, or have the empathy support network to really navigate that, those waters, it, it kind of, I end up seeing a lot of my friends and even a little bit myself fall into this pattern of like this push-pull we break up, we get back together because the love's so real, it keeps pulling them back, but they just keep playing this cycle over and over again. And in extreme scenarios, it can become violent and it can become abusive, but even in less, even just emotionally, you know, charged, it's still kind of reinforcing these new traumas. And, you know, then we leave that relationship and we got this whole other bit new baggage that we're carrying along with us and it just builds and it builds. And so what, what's your take? Because... I see a lot of challenges facing people, especially young people um, these days. Relationships have changed. Um, mm. I think fundamentally it's all the same stuff, but but the the context, the cultural context, the context of technology, um, these are changing the way we relate. They're changing the way our nervous systems function. And um, yeah, I guess I'm just curious from your perspective where that push pull is coming from and what's the pathway to to not not bypassing it but like to getting past that as a a primary struggle for us in our relationships because I think in every context of relationship that push pull uh holds us back like there's all this energy and resources that go into all of the management of the push and pull when actually we we could learn to face the same direction and really start 
moving that way as, as a collaborative effort. Yeah. I like to zoom out as much as possible. And I like to look at it. I, I use the word systemic colonial understanding. And when I say that, I think it's important for me to define it because people at different areas understand what that means. When I say it, I mean, it's like the consciousness, the belief systems that it took for, you know, Europeans to come over and, and, you know, colonize another group of people and like take their land and like who you need to become to do that act. Those belief systems and those value systems were like at the core of what built the entire country that we stand on. You know, it's in our education systems, it's in our politics, it's in our government, it's everywhere. I think we really need to acknowledge that. So for me, let's, let's use education, for example. It is, I, I believe, a really kind of left-brain dominant approach to education. It's very intellectualized. Um, there's no real connection to body or heart or spirit. So there's no real holistic lens. And, you know, that's who, like predominantly the main colonizers that's the mentality that they held and that's the systems that they built understandably so for me it's like i want to see a world where our like public school education is fully acknowledging that and we're actually raising kids in a system where it's like they learn how to name their emotions you know they learn how to listen to their body sensations they're really learning a more holistic um, like it just makes it more normal. I think that's the key is like normalizing trauma healing and getting emotional support, normalizing communication skills. Like what could be more important than that? Mm. Like that's what the world that I'm trying to fight for. And I'm actually doing a project this fall in a, in a school called King George in, in the West End of Vancouver, British Columbia. And I'm attempting to change the social culture of that entire school which is 500 kids. It's, I'm, I'm kind of glad it's not too big and about 40 teachers. And honestly, like, you know, kind of similar to what you said earlier, I'm just going to get in there. I'm going to really give it my best, but I want to put more energy into developing how the social culture works and put more value, put more time and energy into that piece because I think so many kids struggle through high school and it's kind of set so much of the foundation for the rest of our lives. I know it did for me. Yeah. So... I mean, I, I love the project. I love um, the, the, the spirit behind, okay, it's, it's, it's an institutionalized education system. It's, a, it's, it's a, a structural institution in terms of the building that it's in. Uh, it's based on a whole historical lineage of, of philosophy and, and belief structure. And how do we work with that and change it? Yeah. And, and I've been a part of groups and organizations and, and seen that things are not functional or not robust and, and vital in the way that they can be. And I, I've, I think I've made mistakes on not engaging and pushing and driving enough for change. And I've also pushed too hard where the kickback actually made it counterproductive to mm -hmm. the change I was looking to make. And so I'm always curious about in, in that uh, approach to systemic or societal change I think sometimes what we think is needed we might miss the mark you know and, and so how do we find that middle way or that that rightful mm. engagement where it might take longer than we think it should or the yeah. longer than we want it to but actually that approach is sustainably able to 
to facilitate that change. So I'm just curious with you coming in, I'm curious about the timeline of the project, uh, what kind of outcomes are you looking to accomplish and, and what's your approach on that so that you're not, you're not being too passive but you're also not pushing in a way that, that, that fortifies people's position in whatever the status quo is. Totally. It's, it's a really, it's probably the biggest challenge when it comes to like really changing the system, the systemic side. And I think one of the most important qualities is in me as the person talking about it, bringing it forward, I have to be centered and genuinely caring to every single person involved. Like I really have to hold the same level of love that I've done so much work on myself and put it out because yeah, naturally people are going to get protective. Their protective forces are going to come up. They're going to feel like they're missing out on something. They're going to feel challenged. Like some of these teachers, I'm literally asking them to do a level of personal growth. They may have, may have never faced before. And that's not that they easy. They didn't think they were signing up for, right? No, no. And like, that's the thing about being a teacher is like, it's a huge position of power. You have so much influence. And yet, you know, the classic model, there isn't that much responsibility or accountability put on them in a lot of ways. It's just like, you show up, you deliver content. But we're seeing that change. Even in the British Columbia school curriculum, it's radically transforming. They're, they're changing what they teach, how they teach it, their grade formats. So it's, it's really calling a lot from teachers to grow. And I don't know if they really have the environment that's truly safe and supportive that helps them grow in a way where they can challenge it. You know, they can ask ignorant questions and someone's not going to get triggered by it. And I know that job's not for everybody, but I really feel like as a half indigenous, half white man, I am that bridge. It helps me. I, I see myself on both sides. And yeah, I just... It, if I got triggered by them, I'd be triggered by something inside myself. So I, re I really try to work on that the best that I can. For me, that it sheds light on the fact that as much as we operate as though we're these developed adults with, you know, ra rational thought, um, at the root of it, all of our unresolved stuff is still sitting there. And, and in a way, it's sitting there at the level of development in which we kind of came offline. So if we experience trauma at four or five and then we implemented all sorts of strong coping mechanisms for that, that four or five-year-old part of us is just sitting there waiting to, to get the love that it didn't mm -hmm. get or to get the support that it didn't get. And, and I think for people that are in positions of influence or authority or people who are looking to facilitate change, if we stopped looking at things from kind of right-wrong perspective and started looking at a more relational perspective of, of not just the people, but the, the whole living system of, of what a human community is, uh, I think we start to address the pieces that allow people to relax their hold on the status quo, to relax their hold on coping mechanisms that have helped them feel like they can mm -hmm. at least get through the day. And now a different kind of dialogue can take place. And so, you know, you playing that role, it sounds funny, but it, it's like, I think once we heal to a certain degree, we, we become like the world's parents yeah. for those underdeveloped parts of, of, of everyone that didn't get what they needed. And then we are living, providing those things, like just presence, mm -hmm. uh, letting someone know that what they're saying matters to us. Um, 
letting someone know that even if we disagree, I'm not going anywhere. Like yeah. these are pieces that, that we create belief systems around when we're little that don't, that don't give us the, the, the sense that we can relax even when things are a little bit difficult or painful. Hmm. Ah, get, you get, you get me going. Yeah. <laughs> um, so one thing that I really feel like you said, become the parents and I, I, the term I would say is elders. Sure. Even though like I'm, I'm 33 years old, mm-hmm. there's no way I'm, I'm an elder yet. And, and yet because of the impact of colonization, basically the people who are plus 60 on the planet right now, whether they're indigenous and severely traumatized from what they've been through, or they're not native and they've been severely colonized to fit into the, the way, to, to be able to thrive in this world. And that's the interesting thing about some of the coping mechanisms is I believe that some of them you really get rewarded for. So like my perfectionism, for example, like my whole life people see my obsessive need to be the best I possibly can and they are like, good job, Warren. Yeah, you're going to go somewhere someday. And it just feeds it. And I think some people have been fed their whole lives on certain coping mechanisms. And it's really like financially benefited them. And their social status skyrocketed because of it. But then we could kind of like dependent on the gratification of that, even though it's so much less than, say, feeling a sense of true purpose and like contributing to other people's lives and, you know truly loving another human being like those are so much deeper and yet it's those surface things that can be so um alluring and if that's all if we don't have the skills to build those other things then we're just gonna rely on the other ways to just kind of get by in life and feel good enough you know yeah and 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 i think that sheds light on the fact that i think we all have these moments where we see the game we're playing you know, where we're overvaluing things that actually don't have much value and we're undervaluing things that actually have all the value. Mm. And and maybe it's a near-death experience or the loss of a loved one or, you know, some other usually really powerful emotional experiences bring certain things to light. And that in a way, I think we we can kind of see I'm standing on a certain platform for my life, what I've made my life about. And if I've made it about success and, and accolades and money and, and you know, s- social hierarchy, um, it can often feel like stepping off of that onto a platform that is about service and belonging and real meaning and purpose. It feels like I'm, I'm having to give one for the other. Mm-hmm. And I think even though that might be hard, if we knew that what we were stepping onto was solid and stable and predictable, that the belonging would definitely be there. I think right. a lot of people would, but we don't because we have beliefs around I'm not good enough or mm. I don't belong or whatever those are. So that's, to me, that's the gap. It's one of the major gaps for us to bridge around real change for humanity is mm. a willingness to step into that gap before we know for sure that it's going to work out for us. Definitely. Like, and, and that's a tall order. That's a, that's a lot to ask. It's like give, give up everything you've been using to feel like life is worth something and not yet know for sure that it's going to be okay or at least that it's going to feel okay. Yeah. And, and, and so then for me, the, the real bridge for that gap is our relationships. It's like if, if I'm in that place where I know that what I've been holding on to isn't really it 
and I know there is something that is it out there, but I don't quite have it yet. Mm -hmm. One of the main bridges or kind of pathways is if I'm connected with someone that, that knows it more than I do, that that's living it more than I am. Mm. Like that person is, is a reflection to me of how worth it it is to, to cover that gap. And, mm. and that's why what you're saying resonates with me so much is like, it is about how we take care of each other. And, and first that doesn't feel practical and that's hard for a, a Western kind of co colonial left brain approach, which is much more about like this for that. How do I, what am I getting from mm -hmm. my investment here? Yeah. And, and even though in the long run, the relationship is going to feed back to us way more value, way more actual value in the moment. It doesn't always feel that way. So yeah, again, it's like, what are your thoughts on working with this school and knowing that some of that stuff is going to come up and, and what you'll, what you'll do with it? <laughs> well, I think this is the key. So the approach that I've, I'm trying to develop is first, I want to, I want people to, this, I think this is the power of creating facilitated experiences is you can, you can microcosm what these things actually feel like. So what I want to do is I want to connect people to kind of how it feels to maybe not be empathetic, to um, feel like you're winning and, and you're succeeding more than other people, you know, in a competitive atmosphere and someone wins, someone loses, these kinds of things, like connect people to that energy. And then right after that, connect them to a new possibility so they can feel the lived experience in their body. Oh, like this is what it feels like to enrich another person's life. You know, this is what it feels like when we work as a, a real team and one person succeeds and then we all feel great. You know, when one person wins, we all win. And I think that's the key is like really breaking it down and really making the language simple. And I think the more time someone feels it in their body, the more they start to build confidence that it's worth it. You know, the benefit is worth actually putting the time and energy in. Like, I'm going to be happier. I'm going to be more fulfilled. You know, and yeah, it's it's not the simplest task in the world, but I think there's nothing more worth it than than connecting people to the brilliance of being a better human being. You know, it's truly it's I, I, sometimes it's hard for me to grasp how other people aren't so passionate about it. Like once I once I felt the feeling of becoming a better person, it was like I could never turn back. Hmm. You know. So what do you think allows you and, and maybe other people that are in the same place as you to, I, I, I talk mm. about it a little bit like connecting dots. It's like if the dots aren't connected, essentially it's invisible to you. You don't, mm. you don't see the picture. And, but when the dots connect, you're like, oh, you know, like remember those, those pictures that we used to have when we were kids and there was whatever, 120 dots and part of the picture was drawn in, but to see the picture, you had to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. So I, I think of that in terms of just our awareness and, and how we make sense of meaning in our lives. That for people, because of how they've developed in their nervous system, some of those dots around the meaning in life aren't connected. And so they don't experience meaning in things that maybe are actually quite meaningful. So you know, that's one of the ways I look at it, but I'm just curious from your perspective, what allows certain people to, to, to follow through on that? Because I think we all have our moments of clarity of like, oh, this is what life is about. Some people take that and they run with it. Other people kind of put it back under the rug or in the drawer and, okay, that's nice, but I'll just get back to my old life. So what do you see as the difference? I think it's, 
once they have that clarity and the dots start to connect, that there's, there's a genuine environment that they feel safe to show up to consistently. And I think that's, that, that's a tricky thing. And I think that takes personal one-on-one rapport, you know, and someone commonly someone like being able to relate to you as well. Like some people can really relate to my story and it pulls them towards working with me. And, but that's also the, the beauty of having a variety of mentors and how community works, really, and having different people be pulled towards different people. But I think even as facilitators, even as space creators, we also, there's so much to learn and we need a whole network of support for us to be able to hold that position because it's, it is such a big position of power and it's such like a sacred meaningful place and I think when it comes down to it like what's actually effective you know I think that's the question I ask myself almost every single day with every relationship any any problem I ever face like what actually works you know holding myself to that accountability and that that can be a hard thing sometimes to face Um, but I think that's the only mindset that truly will bring real change is we all have to kind of collectively be like, what's actually going to work here? Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, I'll play a devil's advocate on that. And I don't disagree with you, but, yeah, yeah. but there's, there's levels to what you're saying there, which is, what does it mean for something to work? Like, mm-hmm. when we're little and we don't get what we need and we create a coping mechanism, it works. It, it modulates our emotions or it modulates our sense of, of pain or a sense of, of feeling connected or belong, belonging in the world. So, so to me, I think I, I, I need to go further along that question than just what works because yeah. otherwise I'll just use a bandaid to cover up something that goes way deeper than that. Definitely. Um, so, so again, for me, the question, what works, okay, well, what does that even mean for something to work? And, and just cause it's better today than it was yesterday doesn't mean that that's the best thing. Yeah. I, I've used the analogy of, um, I worked with athletes for years and you may have a, an athlete performing at a really high level as a 16-year-old. And they have these movement patterns that are not very efficient. But because of their athleticism or you know, their experience or their hard work, they succeed. But you, you, as a coach, you might know that at a certain point, these, these inefficient movement patterns are going to be in the way of their highest performance. And so you might work with that athlete for a season or two or three where their performance gets lower for it ultimately to get better and, and for us to, again, if we're going to come with an approach that isn't just about addressing symptoms, are we willing to dig deeper than just what works today um, to find our answers or our solutions to things that, that appear to be our problems? So for me, that comes down to being really clear on your goals. You really got to be connected like at the depth of who you are. What do you really want? And then... What works is, is it effectively helping you accomplish your goal? Mm. So like, you know, if we want to live in a world, a, a common saying I say now is where every person can thrive. Like, How do we build that world? Every single person can thrive. That's a super complicated thing that I don't think any one person can figure out. But I think if we genuinely held that intention and we kept coming back to it, like even in my house, even in this house of, you know, five people, What's it going to take for every one of us to thrive? We probably have to define for each of us what does it mean to thrive, you know? What are the core things that... And some of us might not know that. We're still on the journey of figuring that out. Um, but be able to create, you know, a process for at least you're figuring it out more as you go. So that means 
for a lot of people, I think, getting emotional support and connecting to how they feel about the experiences in their life. Um, although really getting into something called human design, which you might know of, not everyone is, their uh, inner authority is necessarily emotional. Some people might have different authorities. So I even that has been really humbling to learn that I'm all about compassionate communication and, you know, connecting to your um, heart's compass, you know, that guides you in life. And yet realizing that, wow, only maybe 50% of the world is, that's their heart's compass. Another 50% might be intuition, might be gut instinct. So there's just so much complexity. I think that's a, another thing, a mantra that I say is to embrace complexity. You know, I think there's this, some part of us wants to simplify so badly. It wants to categorize and we're taught that constantly to stereotype. And I have to really fight it within myself all the time and be like, you know what? I don't know. Like there's so much nuance to every single human being. You know, the way that colonization has impacted them is specific and unique to every single person, you know, and it's, it's its own complex web that needs to be illuminated and worked through. And I think honoring that, you know, not trying to put a cookie cutter thing on everyone. Although there, I think there are some basic things that can help everybody, you know? Yeah. And that brings up uh, a challenge for us because I agree that those categorical systems have a place that there is value in, in simplifying something that is far too complex for the human mind to, to process all at once. I mean, we know for sure that we're, we're not creating an objective image of our reality. We're, we're, we're taking a, a fraction of it and then weaving it into a, a coherent story based on our history. So, so it's good to know that that's what our experience is reflective of, not some objective reality. And that, so we're not going to stop and, and tend to every detail of the complexity. And if we only operate by, by these sort of moment-by-moment -moment senses of things, we might miss some of the detail that's important to pay attention to. Mm. So it's the impossible question, but like how to balance that, how to balance not, not wanting to oversimplify and not wanting to get lost in, in the complexity. And I, I'm really clear that is a, a, a living, unfolding target that, that isn't really for us to hit but for us to, to reach for. It's like a human being who's really alive, you know, in, in more kind of Zen Buddhist circles, it's like the child's mind, beginner's mind, that, that we can bring this kind of presence that's, I describe it as a, a full yes to life. Hmm. It's like I'm not at odds with anything, even the stuff that looks dark and ugly and painful. Hmm. First, I'm a yes to it all. Not because I agree with it or that I think it's good, but it is. To start not being with what is, is, is not a good starting place. Yeah. And then if we're there, now we can really be in life and, and do it in a much less reactive way. So that, like you're talking about um, compassionate communication and you know, some of my work around communication is there's lots of overlap, although I'm not trained in NVC or, or those kind of uh, lineages of, of, of work. Um, but for me, I, I've noticed that when, when we invite ourselves or others to, to tune into physical sensations and emotional sensations. Um, there's something about that practice that, that allows us to relax where otherwise we might have been triggered or, or, or tense. And um, I'm really interested in what I call the, the active ingredient. Like, what is it? It's, it's, not the, it's not the itch on my toe. 
It's not really the sadness I'm feeling, although those things kind of take me there. There's something I'm choosing to be in relation to my experience that, that I'm able to shift. That's, that's how I kind of describe it. And, hmm. and so um, for you and your work around compa compassionate communication, I, I'm curious what, if you were going to try to distill some of the active ingredients and what takes someone from a really reactive uh, kind of highly patterned way of communicating to something that's more free and authentic. Like what, what enables that? I, to me, you're speaking to like the true heart or you could say the consciousness or the spirit of what compassionate communication is ultimately trying to teach, which I really think is, is it's, it's presence. It's like, it's almost really hard. It's almost intangible to describe, but it's this feeling of like really, really trying to open some part of you that is imagining truly what it's like to be someone else. And I think what compassion communication is teaching is, is it's, it's giving you the language techniques of actually taking the curiosity you might have and then formalizing it into guesses. So I remember this in one of my past relationships. Um, I, some ways that my past partner would respond to me was just really stimulating, and I, and I would. Can you I just can you clarify when you say stimulating? I have a sense of what you mean, but it's not what I think most people would think. Triggering of when someone, could be a yeah, synonym. Yeah, so like an un, uncomfortable yeah, neurological some kind of emotional. Yeah. yeah, and I'm getting more and more riled up. Yeah, and I'm like, you know what? And I and I came back after some reflection that I really just need empathy, and. She responded by saying, I am being empathetic. And I was like, wait, she might be. And I, and I, had, I, I went, went again away again, and I thought about that. And I was like, you know what? If you look at the definition of empathy, it's just to imagine what someone's feeling. So I, I believe that she was, yet her responses didn't seem like she was. You know, she really could have been imagining. But I think what, what NVC, Compassionate Communication, is doing is it's, you don't just take that at face value, you're what you're imagining, you actually actively are curious and you make guesses and you find out mm -hmm. and you kind of switch into a role of just being like, okay, where's this person at? Like, is it sadness? Is it anger? You know, like, did you just want acceptance in that moment? Do you just really want me to listen to you? And just like taking that time to, my 100% energy is trying to understand another human being. And there's something about that. There's something magical about that, I think. Every human being is naturally built into them to be able to do it. Mm. And yet in a colonial world that's very mind oriented, very in the right and wrong consciousness, we just it just goes into our the filter of our mind and we like evaluate it and our interpretation and we judge it and then we just like argue back. You know, we're like taught to debate. And I just it crushes me because I think it's the, one of the biggest barriers to really working together. I would almost say it could be the greatest way that we're oppressed is that as long as we keep judging each other, we'll never unify. Even within the same group of people who are fighting for the same cause, we'll can't work through conflict and they'll eventually separate. You know, it's the divide and conquer. It's the ultimate way to, to defeat your opponent. So I think it's just so crucial that we actually you know, learn how to hold space and actually actively understand another human being. And if we do get triggered, that's okay. 
You know, it means we also need the skills to be able to like, hey, I need to pause. I need to go get emotional support. Mm-hmm. You know, and have systems in place where we can do that really easily. Have someone else hear, hear us until we our nervous systems calm down. Maybe even a deeper process going into where the trauma comes from, you know. And then that time to resolve, then we can come back. And I think that's the tricky thing too, is sometimes people go get support and then they just don't come back and finish that conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. That's what really rebuilds trust. It, you know, fortifies that relationship and, and you start to understand each other better. Yeah. And that's, it's hard because, um, if the pain and the difficulty is associated with the relationship and you go and you get your help and you get clear about things and you're like, okay, I got it. The idea of returning like I was just thinking, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, okay, so, so empathy and compassion, and I actually would word empathy differently. Maybe we'll get to that. But, but right now, I just wanted to say, like, if, if I know empathy is going to help and work here, but I don't want to be empathetic, like I am in my difficulty, and empathy is actually about feeling more, I can easily see how people would say no. Or if they go and get their help and they, they feel more sorted, I don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go back to that dynamic. I don't want to go back and, and the possibility of it getting messy again. Totally. And, and it's so powerful when we do. So it, it reminds me about how when we're connected to the meaning of our lives, we, we naturally begin to feel that our lives are about more than we are. That like hmm. My life is about more than me and my experience. And, and you can't force that understanding on anyone. Hmm. It, it doesn't work. I watched this video a long time ago that really touched me. It was, um, it was a, a black man in the southern United States who traveled around and created relationships in these highly racist environments with, with white people. Hmm. And, and uh, it's an it's a interview with him and, and this former Nazi. And, and the guy who was the Nazi said something that just totally pierced me which is, he said, no one was going to beat the Nazi out of me. It was, it, was, it was the extension of empathy in a difficult situation that reached him. And, and I think that's the hard truth about, about change, is like for us to lay down our, our protection, for us to lay down our, our sense of, of being able to willfully separate from one another. And, and instead of that, feel one another. Yeah. That, it's magic, and it hurts. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think you got to be connected to the benefit. You got to really realize the incredible thing that's on the other side of that uncomfortable conversation. And even though that can seem so scary, and you might have made promises to yourself that you would not go back into those scenarios. And, you know, you have to own that, you might be going back to a conversation where the other person isn't taking accountability. They're not getting emotional support and they're going to come with intense judgment, yelling. You have no idea. So, you know, there are many nuances to that landscape. Um, and you might have to go more to an assertive place and set a boundary. And maybe that means stopping that relationship. So there's, you know, there's a lot of elements to it. Um, and there's something else there that's so crucial. It's, it's around what I call disposable culture. And I feel like we live in a world, especially when you get into urban cultures where there's so many options, it's like you don't really have to work things through anymore, especially if you go to somewhere like LA. I think Vancouver has it to some degree for sure. But even in Vancouver, you can only burn so many bridges until everyone kind of knows you. 
Um, whereas something like LA, it's just this huge concrete jungle where it's almost like you don't, there's, you never really have to take responsibility and accountability and work things through with another human being. You can just kind of go into your stuff, show up, you know, and then just walk away from it, get a new job. I don't like this job anymore. I don't like this relationship anymore, you know? And I think a lot of people, like the system that we're in supports that. It can support it. And my friend uh, lives, just moved to this really small island in, on, the, on the coast of BC. And she realized it inside of herself. Like she met this man, heard some comments that she seemed quite racist and was just like, had that feeling of like, I never want to see this person again. And then the next day, seen him at the bank, the next day, seen him at the grocery store. And she was like, whoa, like I have to face this now. (laughs) (laughs) And she said it was really humbling to be more in a village context and how even that system of like goal, urbanization, how much even that influences our ability to work things through, Mm. you know? Yeah, and there's so many implications to the difference between living in sort of smaller, uh, less populated areas where it is much more about relationships and there is just an inbuilt accountability and responsibility that's needed for you to remain in that community. Yeah. And in the cities, it's not that way. Um, yeah, I, I don't even know where I was going with that. Something... Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like the word accountability always comes back to me. Like, imagine we had elders who are holding us accountable every single day of our lives. But, like, elders who really cared and loved for you, they'd be firm with you at times. You know, they tell you the truth, but they also really held space with you if you got emotional. You know, I don't think we really have that anymore. And it's like, it almost feels like it's our generation that needs to re, be, re-become elders. You know, that's what, that's what the world is starving for so that we can kind of reinitiate the young kids growing up with those healthy elders and role models so they can become like way better than we can even conceive. Like that's one of the things that makes me the most excited. Like imagine what like a batch of youth could become if they were really raised in like a thriving environment. I, I think, I don't even think we can conceive of what's possible. Mm. And that's what I'm trying to like kind of, I want to see. I want to see on my deathbed at least a glimpse of what's possible yeah. before I die. Can you, can you say more about what that means to you, the thriving environment? Because I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding mm. about, about what's needed for a child or really any human being to thrive. And, and to me, it, it's not giving them what they want, <laughs> right? It, it, because... Now, like just the research around uh, social emotional development, there's there's this research that that clearly indicates that if if parents and caregivers are constantly inter- intervening in the conflict between children, there's really important coping mechanisms and and self regulation mechanisms that don't develop. Mm-hmm. The child doesn't have to be with the difficulty that's created when they just grab a toy out of another child's hand. And, and so, I, again, I think it's easy to, to have misconceptions around what does it mean to create an environment where people can really thrive. And, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think the immediate um, kind of, especially I think on, on the left side of the political spectrum, even though I don't really subscribe to, 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 to that uh, perspective, I don't mm-hmm. really like to look at things through that lens, but just my sense is, is that, that there's m- more of a ideological compassion that occurs 
in a way that that sometimes is amazing and sometimes is misplaced. Like, mm. like they don't, we don't quite get that just delivering something that makes it look better in the moment isn't really delivering what's needed. Yeah. So just what what do you think about what it means to create a thriving environment? I think you got to look at through the lens of what actually builds like self-sufficiency and capacity in a human being. And this is what's been so great of of becoming a facilitator and like understanding what facilitation is compared to teaching. And I think in those interventions if someone teaches and kind of gives someone the answer, it doesn't develop it. They just become dependent on that right? Whereas if the questions are asked, you know, if they're invited in to feel into what they're feeling and go through a process, they inherently start to actually build the ability to tune into inside, for example. So to me, facilitation is more about guiding people through an experience so that, you know, they learn for themselves as opposed to standing there and just telling them what to do. And in that, that doing that takes so much patience especially with 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 youth and with kids like i all, my heart goes out to all the parents just like wow especially in a structure where the parents don't have nearly enough support whether that's financial emotional you name it and they're living in more anatomic families and they don't have this community of support anymore but yeah i think it's all about what actually builds that capacity and that's what i'm trying to always learn to get better at and you know, it's a humbling experience for me. I, I still need a lot of mentors myself and um, people who can give me quality feedback and, you know, sitting in the discomfort of watching somebody fail. It's not easy, man. You just want to tell so them so bad. Yeah. So important. Yeah. I, yeah, I really, I know um, there's a fine line between kind of dissociation and, and, and being kind of callous towards other people's experience and, and caretaking in mm. a way that is actually a disempowerment. Like enabling? You know, like, yeah, it's yeah. like there's just this fine middle way where, where they know our love, they know our presence, they know we're there, and they also know that we're not going to come in and do it for them. Mm-hmm. And that, that is so empowering to people of any age. It doesn't, it's not, it's not really a caretaker or parent child thing. It's just an interpersonal human thing that, that we can over time demonstrate how trustworthy we are. Not because in this moment, I'm always going to do what you want me to, but because you know where I'm coming from and what I do and you know how consistently I show up for what's important in our relationship. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that kind of trust is the, the, the real fabric of community and, and it's the real fabric of us doing meaningful things together. And, and as you say, we're, um, we've gone off track in a lot of ways. And, and what is it to come back? Like you said, you know, you're, you're, you said you're 34, is that right? 33. 33. And you're not an elder, but it, the, the saying, um, in, in, in a world of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, something like that. It's like, you might mm. not be there yet, but but relative, it may be your role right now. Yeah. You know, and 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 I th- I've talked to so many people that are as as you said earlier, it's like they're having to in a way be their parents' parents, because the parent didn't yeah. didn't do their work, didn't heal their stuff, and now the child is actually having to figure out what does it mean to 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 be a loving human being to this person who, at least in our minds, is meant like the roles seem to be upside down. But it doesn't matter. It's like, mm-hmm. what am I equipped for? 
it doesn't matter the label that the world has given me or the number next to my age. It's like, what am I equipped for? And, and, yeah. and to step into that um, and to not be dishonest about being further along than I am. I think that's another piece just Definitely. around being a teacher or facilitator. It's, 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 uh, it's really unsafe when we start to pretend that we know more than we do or that we're more than we are. So that, yeah. again, is a, is a fine dance as well. Especially, I say, as, as men, I think becoming narcissistic is almost normal. And it's almost, it can be one of those things that's rewarded. And so that's, that one's, that one's a really slippery slope. And I think when I graduated high school, like I was, I was extremely narcissistic and it took a lot of humbling experiences to connect back to my own, like humanity and my, you know, my full self and all the flaws and mistakes that I have. And it's still happening. You know, I still have these huge humbling experiences this one theory I have is that, you know, we have these different ages in us that are kind of frozen in time. I think you mentioned that earlier. And like, what does it take for that frozen part of me to grow up? And what I've noticed is when I'm around certain people, all of a sudden I'll unconsciously start going into a certain age. Like for example, when I'm, when I was about 17, I was really like argumentative, competitive, I was really, I was so set in like a hierarchy system. And I noticed I went to this program a couple of years ago and that totally came out with the two facilitators. And it took the whole program, almost like three retreats at the very end of the last retreat to realize, whoa, like they're an authority figure. And for some reason, probably because they're NVC trainers and they can hold really good space, it, some part of me felt like it was safe enough to go back to that age. Mm. And, but it was really triggering for them. It really was, especially, especially one of them was really <laughs> triggered by it. And that was really hard for me. And I didn't understand why. And I was like, and I, but I came to realize like, yeah, like I think there's this part of me that yearns for an elder that can hold me in all my stuff, you know, that I can just go to this competitive, cocky 17 year old self. And someone just like sits there and just looks at me with love and just not even rattled by it, you know? I think there's a part of me that yearns for that. And yet sometimes I'm realizing like I can't unconsciously put that on people. I really need to become more aware of that and try to find spaces where I can work on those. I can go to those places and yeah. it's intentionally designed to help me move through it. Mm. One of the beautiful things about work that I've been doing for the last few years is that um, part of the work is, is about the internal dialogue that we have and, and that whatever that internal dialogue tends to be the kind of relationships we create externally, but that we don't need the other for that dialogue to take place within us. Right. And so that what I was thinking as you were speaking is that it's so powerful when some, someone outside of us can embody that, embody that part that's, that's mm -hmm. present and loving and, and unwavering in the midst of our funny, old immature patterning mm -hmm. and it, it immediately connects us into all of that and we're actually able to be that with that patterning inside and so that that's what i'm i'm often reminding people of or pointing people to is like yeah if you can do it out there with someone that's amazing and you actually don't have to wait yeah. for that person to show up 100%. to begin bringing that quality it's because it's the quality that they're being with us that we're most responsive to mm -hmm. you couldn't just just dissect it into well they held their head this way and they said this thing at this time that's part of it 
but there's also a quality of being that they're bringing mm-hmm. to us in an embodied way that we're able to bring to our own internal dialogue and that actually changes the dialogue so that that 17-year-old in you can be held by a deeper part of you that, that isn't the limited conditioning mm-hmm. and, that, and that that now can change. And so it's, it's that we can come at that, that patterning from, from the outside when we see the value of connecting with someone or being in an environment, awesome, go there. Mm-hmm. And if that's not there, from the inside out, we can, we can hold that conditioning in a way that has that quality to it. And, and we actually answered the question that I was going to come to, which is um, I like to ask guests on the, on the show um, if there was a conversation in their life that they felt really was a, a pivotal moment or a turning point for them. And so you, you kind of talked about that, that experience in the NVC training, but I'm curious if, if there's anything you want to add or if there's any other conversation you had that was like, oh, you, you really got something. And it, it, for you, it changed the trajectory of your life. <laughs> yeah, I definitely have one. <laughs> Um, just the question just made my mind go blank. What I was going to say, I was going to respond to what you just said, but I'm remembering. Okay. (sighs) There's still some emotion connected to it, but it's been a massive teacher for me. So the conversation is me being pulled aside after doing a presentation in front of about a a thousand indigenous youth and adults, there's a few adults in there too as well. And I made a joke about being attracted to a woman, a native woman with a bannock butt, which means a woman with a flatter butt. It's a common joke in the native world. I've heard it literally hundreds of times and laughed at it many times. And I said the joke without really putting my social awareness hat on and what, how that could make some people feel. And let's just say it affected someone who had enough power to kick me out of a conference. And when they pulled me aside, I think the hardest part about it was that I couldn't stay centered and that I I reverted back to being a three-year-old boy and having this native woman just lay into me and was just like disgusted that I could ever say that about like sexually objectify a native woman's body. And it was just like paralyzing. I literally, I think I got a little bit defensive in my mind right away. So my protectiveness started to come in. She also said that I was being stereotypical, which I really didn't think. And I was going to like argue about that. Like I just said I was attracted to this person. It doesn't mean it's, I'm saying everyone's like that. But that's my first impulse. And then the second impulse was like, I can't say that. This is going to create more argument. It's not going to work. And then the shutdown. And I literally went into kind of a free state. And she was like, so what? You're not going to say anything? And then it was just like more anger, more freeze. And then, okay, like this conversation's over. And eventually led to me getting kicked out. And it was just so, so many things about that moment I've thought about over and over and over and over again. And one of the key things... I was not resourced in that moment. So A, I had structured my life in a way where I was way too overworked. I was facilitating conference after conference, workshop after workshop, and I was just emotionally, physically drained. And if I think back, it's like, yeah, that was really affecting me. And it's part of why I went outside to go um, like kind of 
just calm myself down and gather myself up. And then I got called on stage randomly and ended up going up on stage right after someone who um, shared a story about murdered and missing indigenous women. And I didn't know that. I just walked on stage like, Hey, everybody. And all I seen was a bunch of kids leaving. So I tried to be really engaging. And I think I came across as super insensitive. And I I just thought kids would leave. I didn't know why kids were leaving. I was like, ah, check it out. I'm a beatboxer. You know, I'm a rapper. And um, so I just think I came off on the wrong foot. And then once I came to that joke, it was just like, not the atmosphere, like the worst context to come up with that. And don't get me wrong. I really think that being held accountable in that moment's really important. And that, that there was a really important lesson for me to learn in that, you know? And I think the hardest part was that not being seen for like the eight years of healthy masculinity work I've done and how many women I've held space for and like all the stuff I've done to try to create a world that's safer for everybody. Reduced to the bad man. Yeah. And just seen as this like horrible person that almost feeling like I'm seeing as like a murderer or like a, you know, sexist pig. And it just totally shut me down. Like I couldn't. So, respond. so I'm curious for you, how do you feel like that changed you or what, what, what about that was, yeah. was transformative? That's really what I'm, I'm wanting to yep. pick out the, cause a, a few things come to mind, but I'd love to hear for you what, what you did with that, that, that you can reference that as a, as a kind of a transformational conversation. So I think the two pieces is one, I really looked at my life and how I was living it. And I really realized that I was really living in like a workaholic state of mind, which I believe is a very colonial mindset. Mm. And I wasn't honoring the fact I was not taking, like that's something I have full control over, especially in the financial place that I am, the level of work I've done in myself. I can be more emotionally resourced and more balanced in my lifestyle. And I've, I took like six months off from that, maybe even more. And I've really thought about it every day and I talk about it and I try to rebuild my life from the ground up. And I really feel like I'm just in a way more stable, centered place all the time now. I mean, I still can like waver a little bit, but it's, you know, a fraction of what, how stretched I was putting myself in before. And that was like a pinnacle of being stretched. So that's one thing, owning holistic lifestyle. And two was like, wow, I also, there's certain skills in that moment I wasn't employing that I know, that I teach. And one is like even pausing and naming how I was feeling and how it was hard because I was frozen. Um, and also working on that my core, some of my core wounds around that. Like there's something about when disgust is pointed towards me and anger. Those mm-hmm. are the two primary. So since then, I've really focused that on that in my like emotional trauma healing Mm -hmm. is really focusing on people almost role-playing that over and over again and seeing what comes up what memories where'd that come from hold it with love heal it so those are like the two primary ways i'd say nice i mean it's, it's awesome that you there's lots we can do with that kind of a moment where we feel mm-hmm. like we're maybe wrongfully being judged or put in a light that doesn't fully reflect us mm-hmm. um when when we feel kind of attacked in a way that you know maybe some of it was your responsibility and maybe some yeah. of it didn't some of the response didn't belong but that you went away and said okay i really need to look at this which i think is so important and what also comes up for me is is what i would describe as a missed opportunity 
on the side of the woman and or the conference, which is if, if what they were most reactive to was the impact that not including you in a kind of restorative something yeah. with what happened is a missed opportunity. Definitely. It's a missed opportunity for you to feel loved and held and held accountable, which the, sometimes we think those things can't go together, but yeah. they fully, they're a marriage, they belong together. And, and that for the, whoever you spoke uh, that to that was offended or, or hurt by it, mm -hmm. that there's an opportunity for that to be a relational solution yeah. instead of an exile, which, which is not actually a solution of any kind. I agree. So, yeah, but it, it, it's interesting that, that I think we have all of these different conversations and some of them are uplifting and empowering and inspiring in the moment and some of them are like punches in the stomach yeah. but but we get to choose what we do with them so mm -hmm. that's that's what i'm kind of taking from from the conversation you cho chose to share for sure and i also think about like where's where's the level of accountability and responsibility on all sides in that dynamic mm -hmm. and like if you're in a position of power like how much how crucial it is that you're also aware of. If I'm at this level trigger, am I the one that's going to have conversation with this person? Sure. You know, like I think allies can really play an important role in that dynamic. Mm -hmm. Like someone who gets it, they're going to be firm, but it's not going to be like they're super triggered and they're coming with that energy. Yeah. Because I, I needed to learn. There was It was an important learning for me there. And again, what's effective in that moment? What will actually work at having me learn it and yet um, help me become even a stronger ally towards indigenous women in this example, yeah. you know? And I really think that there's, that opportunities, those are there, and yet there's, there is responsibility on many, many levels to make that work. Is that what we really want, yeah. you know? Is, is exiling someone going to create more toxic masculinity? We need to genuinely ask ourselves that. For sure. Because I could see the way that it affected me. Like I had some suicidal ideation I've never experienced prior. I had these like belief systems that wanted to rise up and be like, create some distorted perception that I was, I was justified or that I didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And I could see, luckily I have the wherewithal to see them and, and not let them grow. And I have a lot of support to help me through that. But I could see a lot of other people kind of going into this festering space and then they're ostracized. So what are they going to do? They're going to find other people who they can relate to that also got kicked out and then they're going to get together. They're going to build a little insular community. And I think we see this with like incels, involuntary celibates, and they start to feed off of each other. And then like that toxicity grows. And to me, that's not cool because that creates the really extreme states of violence that can happen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think any of those kinds of extremist um, sort of social or political cells or communities, that to me, that's all a reaction to a sense of not belonging, to a mm. sense of not feeling meaning and connection in life. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately, the solution still seems to be making them wrong further ostracizing them further, you know, and, yeah, or punishing. And, it, and it's tough. It's like, how do you warmly invite someone in that's doing such heinous things? It and, is. and it's not, it's not to do anything inauthentic, but again, I think the more we are tuned in, the more we have healed our stuff, the more, the more love we have to share, the more, yeah. the more capacity we have to, sh to hold space for someone that is doing all the things they can to actually push us away, you know, be because it is this funny sort of duplicity, which is, when we feel really disconnected and, and, and hopeless, 
we simultaneously desperately want connection and we will simultaneously fight against it at the same time mm. because connection also represents pain to us. So, you know, you can see how much confusion there is um, and, and how challenging the, the way forward is. And I'm an optimist. Like, yeah. it's challenging and by no means do I think it's beyond us. Mm-hmm. But it requires us to, to wake up and, and show up and feel more deeply and, and, and be more responsible for what actually is ours. Totally. Yeah. And and I do think that like we need to kind of hold a spectrum of acts, like so to speak. Like if someone says a joke, you know, that's like a, people can consider that more like a microaggression. Um, but if someone like you know sexually abuses someone, like we need to in, in in a big position of power. Like I think there is different strategies for different levels. I think like definitely love all here. We start to get to some of these extreme acts, like. It needs to be quite a bit. I call it like the protective use of force in nonviolent communication. Mm-hmm. It's also what it's referred to as. And it's firm. Like some people literally need to be removed, but not ostracized, but put into some kind of, you know, forced program, rehabilitation program, where they can actually have a, a fighting chance at actually healing and maybe finding some way to contribute back to humanity. There is possibility there, even sure. if it's them like making videos and talking about the, what they like. You know, there's so many infinite possibilities of how they could somehow contribute back yeah and for me whatever part of the spectrum the person might be on any rehabilitation that is possible comes through love Mm. now the the interventions that you use of course are not the same for someone who tells a joke and for someone who molests someone it's it's a whole different patterning a whole different different uh, depth and and quality of patterning but the vehicle that we, like the, the, the spirit that we use to drive the vehicle, the, like whatever tool we use across that spectrum, the, the fuel for that vehicle is love. And then the specific tool, well, we, we need to just get better and better at, at how yeah. to implement those strategies. But I think the mistake we make is, is this desire to make it black and white, this desire to, to frame people as good or bad. Yeah. Um, it's just not true. It's not an accurate representation of what humanity is. And, and yeah. we can do bad things, but there aren't good people and bad people. I have two things to that. One, like love, I agree. And sometimes it's maybe not necessarily love for that person, but it, it's even connecting the dots of like, it's, this is also love to the people you care about. They're like, like holding this person and, and helping them towards rehabilitation is creating a different world than a punishment world that's based on revenge and hate, you know, and disgust, like those things breed more of the same thing. So to me, there's, there's that internal responsibility is like healing. It's like a commitment to healing is so, so, so crucial. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there was one more piece I was going to say. Can't remember. It's all right. It's in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think one of the things that I wanted to to get to before we finish up is, um, for me, I've been, I think forever since I, since I can remember stories have been, uh, an inspiring part of my life, a, a place where I, I lose myself to something other than my normal life, but that's inspiring to me that, that, that connects me to meaning. Um, and, and lately more and more curious about, well, how does that really work and how do we use story as, as a way to transmit something of meaning that isn't about the content of the story, although the content becomes sort of the vehicle. Um, 
like for you with an indigenous background, um, have stories been uh, an integral part of your life? And if so, I'd be curious about what, what your, yeah, just what your thoughts are around story and, and, and how they've, how they've changed or, or supported change in you. Yeah. I mean, from like, an, you know, my Okanagan seal background, stories are literally like an epicenter of almost the entire culture. It's how that we, we continue and, and learn the essence and the teachings that get passed on for generations. And I've heard some amazing things. Like I actually remember the first time I heard a story and it was when I was 23 and I was at this school called the Inalkin Center and um, the executive director was reading a story or she actually handed it out on a piece of paper and then she walked away. She's like, I'll come back and we'll unpack it. And I read it and I remember my first thought was like, this is like like a grade five-year-old, grade five could write this story. Like it was so simplistic. I was like, okay, now what? And I was pretty cynical. And then she came back in the room and she's like, okay, so what do you hear inside the story? And people were kind of slow at first. They said a couple like the obvious morals that are on the very surface level. And then some people, and then she's like, okay, what about this? She started, what about like, how could this represent this? How could these two things be? How do we say that in our normal world? And all of a sudden we just like got into this conversation of the metaphors inside this story. And it was completely blew my mind. It was almost like I hated English class growing up and it, I, I couldn't stand metaphors and like, I, cause I think I just struggled with them. And then all of, it was like this new part of my brain started opening and I was like, wow. Like, do you remember the story? Um, I think it's, if I were, I could only guess, like I don't remember it accurately. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like how the animals got their names. Mm. And, uh, I think that was the a big turning point of realizing the brilliance of indigenous people of of like the Sikh people and 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 reclaiming a part of me that there's just so much beauty and power in it. You know, and like traditional stories I think have a specific place. You know, they're a little different than like my, my own personal narrative stories which also are phenomenal. I just I love stories so much. I really want to actually do like a something on my website where I do a story a week where I just tell a new story from my life. Cause they're just, they're so, so good. They're so good. And yeah, I, I noticed, I mean, I love hearing stories. I love reading stories. Um, I love telling stories. And, uh, I, I remember just recently I was watching a video and it was, it was like some cheesy thing. It was, it was like 40 minutes of the golden buzzer on, uh, America's got talent. Yeah. And so I don't know, it was maybe a dozen stories, but, but what I recognized was, um, so the person performed and it was always a beautiful performance, but not, not the best performance. It wasn't really about that. It was like, mm -hmm. they told the person's story about someone they lost or the condition that took their hearing away or mm -hmm. whatever it was. And, and so it was like, I got that the story is where the meaning comes from. You know, the, 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 a lot of the meaning we feel in relationship to life is about the story that preceded it. The, the moment in itself isn't enough. It's like the story imbibes it with, with, with depth and with texture and, and this whole spectrum of human experience that without which it would just be a nice performance. 
but because the story is there and because of what the story touches in me, it, it opens up all of this emotion that just like, I was just weeping, you know, this listening, I was on my computer typing, listening to this, this, uh, this, uh, video and, and just crying and crying. And it was, it was all joy. Like it was just this joy of, yeah, the meaning of the human experience. And in particular noticing that the, the common thread was like overcoming difficulty, mm -hmm. that there's something about overcoming difficulty that's deeply needed for us. And it's one of the reasons I brought up that yeah. point about what is creating a, an, an environment where people can thrive. It, it's not about making it feel better for them, mm -hmm. although it can include that, of course, and it, it has care in it. But, but the struggles are, are absolutely vital for us to fulfill our potential. And, and that's an interesting juxtaposition to how I think most of us think of how we might help or support others. And, and I like to include it. It's like, it helps me get quiet and, and to maybe listen more deeply when I'm engaging with someone to not necessarily go with my first reflex of uh, people come to me and they, they want to talk or they want to share or they want advice or, or help or support. Um, and so for me to, to slow right down and to know that my first job is to really just be with them mm -hmm. and, and that that is enough. And then mm -hmm. whatever I add for me has to come from some clear knowing. It's like in my heart, mm. I'm knowing the goodness of where I'm coming from and I'm knowing the goodness of what I'm doing or saying. And then even if that's a hard truth or a loving, warm, fuzzy truth, it, it, it's first about me being with them and coming from something that I just know is good. Mm. And uh, you know, if I was gonna say to someone like what, what to start with, that would be a good place to start, those two things. That's, I really like that. And it, and it, and it reminds me of the complexities and nuance of consent culture. Cause a lot of things I teach in my, in my workshops is I'm a really strong advocate for, for consent. And I think in large part, it's because a lot of people don't have that connection to that sense of just, it's like a sense of an intuitive feeling of like, this feels the right, the right. And if you don't know, if you don't really feel that in the moment, you're not sure what the other person's wanting, definitely check in with them. Like, mm -hmm. hey, like, I'm noticing there's a part of me that wants to offer you, like, a suggestion of what you could do. Like, are you open to hearing that? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable hearing no. You know, and then the person might be like, yeah, no, that's not really what I want right now. Like, okay, you know. But there's times in my life where someone's really asked me for empathy, and yet inside me, I'm like, man, you need to hear the truth right now. <laughs> you know, you need this firm, if I just emotionally support you you're not going to face that the core thing that's just going to repeat you going into the cycle and i care about this person like i love them and if there's times where i just didn't do it because i asked consent and they said no and i was like wow i just felt so torn up and i would watch them suffer the same things again and again sometimes i'm holding space for them over and over again no that's really hard so and and if we if we try to intervene or insert help when there isn't receptivity, it won't land anyway. Yeah, so totally. it's like, that's, that's the difficulty of, of if you're going to take the care to see, Hey, are you open to X? And they say, no, you gotta be, don't ask if you're not willing to honor the no that they might have. True. Yeah. And, and I still think there's value in sometimes like following your gut to actually say the totally. harsh thing because you never know what that's going to impact. Like if it's an intuitive, yes, but this is the thing, even saying that to people, I get a little freaked out yeah. because 
knowing that inside yourself is a really delicate thing that I don't want people just going out and doing that stuff. Like with all the communication skills I teach, I talk about the power they hold mm -hmm. and like this can really affect someone's life and, and you could be using it in a slightly triggered state to manipulate people. You really got to be careful with that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you got to keep coming to environments like this where like people can watch you and give you feedback and hold you accountable. So you, yeah, and on the extreme end of that piece is if I'm a parent and, and my three-year-old wants to go and play near the traffic, it's not a consent situation. I'm not asking my kid if they're okay with me moving them away from traffic, right? So I think yeah. that that's an extreme, but it is a spectrum. And, and, and for me, it's not actually about getting it right. We're going to make mistakes with each other. Mm -hmm. We're going to cross lines. If, if our whole intention is to try and not cross any lines, we're not really in relationship. Yeah. You know? And so, so to me, the, the consent culture and the consent um, piece that's being kind of facilitated in, in especially kind of a Western spaces is incredibly valuable because of where the level of maturity and self-awareness and interpersonal communication is at. And it's not a parking spot. To me, it's not, it's not some button solution that if I do the thing, if I ask the question, I'm free and clear. It's like, it's just another of the tools that help us navigate yeah. a space that we may not yet be equipped to navigate without. And so, 100%. yeah. Like, yeah. At the heart of consent is, a t I call attunement. Mm. It's really being fully attuned where someone at trying to get into their wavelength. Like and you, sometimes you just can't quite feel it. You're not quite sure. sure. And so by asking consent, it's giving you the information you need to be able to like more than consent. It's like checking in with someone like, and, and like in the work that I've done around consent and I haven't framed it in that context, but in, in the work around boundaries and, and speaking truth, it's sometimes someone just needs to know they're, they're able to say no. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's a yes. Oh yeah. Right. Or and they so, have choice. Yeah. Just, yeah. just, they know that if they say no, you are completely responsive to that. No. Mm -hmm. And now all of a sudden they can relax and in the relaxation they can, Oh, actually I have a yes for that. Yeah. But, but that space was needed and then the reassurance was, was needed on a conditioned level for them to, to see the yes mm -hmm. before that space was there. It was actually a no. Yeah. And that's what I mean. It's like a, it's a very complex moving target. It really is. And, and, and it's, uh, yeah, I, I like to get out of thinking there's a single answer that kind of makes it good, but that it, this kind of communication requires us to be all in it all the time. Yeah. And there's like no formula. There's no fixed way. It's every, what you did in one conversation could literally be the worst thing to say in the next. And it's, it's, it's an alive process yeah. that you have to be willing to keep being present to. And that's the thing, right? Like in the romantic dynamic that I'm in right now, I'm like super blessed to be with someone who's also done so much work and is really committed to being in a healthy, sustainable relationship with me. And these kinds of dynamics will happen where let's say, we're like making out and then all of a sudden something comes up for her. You never know. Like any moment, anything can happen. And that th that she knows that, that if she pauses and starts to go into it, that I'm going to be there for her, you know? And if I can't be, she also knows I'm like, Hey, you know what? Like I'm starting to feel really like shame response that I did something wrong, you know? And sometimes she's able to even support me first. I feel heard, I feel calm down, then I turn around and I can support her and what happened for her. Sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes it's just too much. We're both mm -hmm. too, and being able to have the awareness and be like, whoa, like 
we need to, we both need support and it can't come from us <laughs> and stepping away from it instead of going into that argument, you know, which I think so many relationships are riddled, riddled with. And yeah. we just don't, haven't been taught the awareness and practice the things to help us get through them. Yeah. There's a, there's a woman, Carol Dweck. I don't know if you, uh, she has a, it's like a Ted talk or something like that. It's about 10 minutes and, and it's through uh, the Royal Society for the Arts. They do these really cool uh, kind of stop, uh, stop motion animation, hmm. uh, like someone drawing on a whiteboard while oh. the person is talking. Yeah. Probably R- said some. RSA? RSA, yeah. yeah. Check them out. They, they have a bunch on YouTube and, and they have their own website. But, yeah, I've watched um, a bunch. They're yeah, great. yeah, so good. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she does this one and, and the, it's about mindset, fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Mm-hmm. Carol Dweck, she's the one who kind of uh, coined that phrase. Um, and the, in the video, she talks about a learning environment in which when we don't get it, it's not a pass or fail, it's a not yet. So that I think we do a disservice to ourselves when we say, oh, I don't have it. And then often we tell the story, I can't, or I won't, or mm-hmm. it'll never happen for me. And, and what, what Carol Dweck is saying is that if we can start to instill in our, ourselves that learning is, a, is a, a part of an ongoing process, yeah. and that there isn't really a, a, a summit, there are kind of, levels of oh, I achieved something or oh, I can do what I couldn't do before mm-hmm. but that ultimately we recognize we're on some kind of ascendant path of learning and if we try for something and it's not quite it yet that it's a not yet and and that we can kind of take a moment reflect check in brainstorm create a plan and start again and then mm-hmm. consistently you know i think in the world of of success and, and and business and finance i think you have that kind of maybe what i would describe as often a, an an anxious motivation to kind of learn and succeed and grow but, mm. but we can also come from a place of love in the same vein in the same direction but it's it's being motivated by something that's like oh this is why i'm here mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here to evolve i'm here to become something i'm not yet Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think, you know, we can we can support each other in that. And, and for me, one of the best ways we can support is is to fail well. Mm-hmm. You know, to 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 be in our difficulties in a way that's that's not um, sep- in separation. I'm not trying to protect myself. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to hide my failure. I'm I'm moving in my failure in a way that's fully responsible. And uh, I've been on both sides of that. You know, mm-hmm. I've failed badly, of course, but um, I've, I've also failed well, and I've been the recipient of someone else failing well, and it's, it's such a, a beautiful, nourishing, and empowering experience where we get to, oh, yeah, this is, this is what being human is. And uh, I think that, if, if we could all get a little bit better at that, that, mm-hmm. would, that would go a long way. I think that, that there's the internal component of failure and then there's like the environment of how we do how we show up for each other in their failure i think that's also really crucial Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things i do when i do team building or social culture transformation in organizations as i i love this one this one game's my all-time favorite it's called yes yes yay and basically you know we're in a circle one person leaves we come up with a task they need to accomplish something safe and let's say it's they have to sit in the center of the circle as as an example and when they come back in, all we can say is yes when they move towards the goal. It's like, yes, yes, yes. And inevitably, the person's not going to, they're going to start failing. Mm. So like, they'll start going the wrong direction. And, you know, I really teach them 
this isn't we're learning also not to say no so just go silent the whole room silent and then they're like and sometimes you watch and we're sitting in silence and they're just like Trying failing on, yeah. and failing and failing and failing and as the facilitator i watch them and i'm like i'm watching them really carefully to see is this getting a little too much there's like a threshold for their failure and when i see it i'll be like you're doing so good like that's great just keep trying new things we will say yes if you get it you know and just having just enough encouragement i'm not giving them the answer sometimes i do have to get to the point where i have to give them yeah, hints yeah. but nudge them but even the hints would be really broad not specific mm -hmm. hints mm -hmm. and y guess what happens guess what happens in the group what do you think the group starts doing they start trying to give them like signals of what to do some people will just like overtly say things and have to like constantly stop yeah. people because they're so uncomfortable with watching someone fail they just have to give them the answer but they, they you know they're, they're disconnected from like okay yes i'm uncomfortable with this but this is what's really going to help them grow they need to like learn how to be creative face failure try new things be encouraged you know and guess what happens when they finally get it the room goes crazy people are like wow like sometimes the buildup is so massive mm -hmm. and it's like that idea that's the that idea is like when one person wins we all win and that's shifting that culture from this competitive individualistic more colonial mindset to like we can all win you know and so like, i have a question about that um I play devil's advocate often sure um because I, th I think there is something fundamentally dysfunctional about about some of the core tenets of our society, uh, some of the the, the 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 reference points for what life is for, what it's about, what's meaningful, uh, are off the mark, mm. and um, and I also I, th I think it's just important to to not take anything out of hand just just because it seems like a better idea than the other thing, and so. Um, I see a cost of trying to ever uh, equalize the playing field, to, to ever um, stack the deck in favor of, of all participants. And, and, and so, you know, I, um, do you know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? Yeah. He's like a social media. Yeah, the yeah, intense guy. guy. Yeah, I enjoy him. <laughs> I um, do too. Yeah, yeah. And, and because he's talking about the human side of things as well. So he's talking about how to, how to you know, run a business and do social media marketing, but he's also talking with people about their limiting beliefs and you know, being invested in what their parents think and all that kind of stuff. So I enjoy him. But um, you know, he talks about you know, everyone getting a trophy in in elementary school you okay. know and 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 what the cost of that is mm -hmm. which which is i think from his perspective a kind of i don't need to give my best because i'm going to get a trophy anyway mm -hmm. you know and, and then the double-edged sword of that of, of of again this is my question is like okay what is what is the best environment to thrive in not in the short term but like from a big picture long-term perspective and sometimes what really is lovely and warm and fuzzy in the short term is disastrous in the long term. And, and, and so I, I, I'm wondering if you see a line there or like how does that work where it, it's not about trying to make sure everyone feels warm and fuzzy after participation. Like sometimes I'll, I'll finish a workshop and, and I know there's something I could do or say to make it better for someone. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. And, and I might get it wrong sometimes, but what I'm listening for is 
like what what are they in what are, what are the opportunities of what they're in and what does my engagement or intervention do in terms of them getting it it's like if someone's here and and the, the learning is going to happen over here if i help them go all the way if i just take them and i place them there no learning and but what yeah. if they get stuck and do i give them a little nudge or do they move mm -hmm. them you know like these questions around how do we engage in a way that isn't reflexively believing that just because I help someone win today that I'm actually giving them the best I can give them in terms of the big picture long-term. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's an answerable question. It, it feels yeah. like it's, it's an ever-changing complexity. I think everyone develops their own facilitation. I'll call it facilitation style, which is how you support someone getting there. And the, I've been really privy to a lot of different models that show different styles. Like for example, um, my friend Martha, she has this one called, there's the, the trainer, the coach and the, and the partner. So the trainer is like the classic teacher. I'll just teach them. Like, let's say someone puts it down like, you know what? I'm just not really getting what's the difference between requests and demands. It's just not landing for me. And then the, the trainer is going to put the trainer hat on and be like, oh, well, this is what it is. I'll explain it. Um, again, that's more classically how we're, a, a Western education model is. The coach would be like, well, what, what do you think so far? Like, tell me, tell me what you got so far. And like, you get a sense. Like, does anyone in this room feel like they want to share that? Share it? Again, that's still maybe teaching. Maybe the coach would be like, um, or the facilitator to me would be like, let's take them through an exercise. So they can physically feel it on their bodies and they get the aha moment within themselves. And then the partner might share like a story, like, you know what? I remember a time when I struggled with that too. And they share some vulnerability and then it's like, we're in this together and we like brainstorm together. So there's like a bunch of like models out there that show how to support someone to get from that, where they are to where the growth is. And I constantly ask myself, what's the most empowering version what truly creates like a sense of self-sufficiency and like a greater capacity that I can do this for myself and I can even turn around and be that kind of same role model for another person. You know, that's the question I'm always asking. And I think it's, I think it's a dynamic one for different people, for different instances. It makes me think I've, I've never really thought about it this way. Well, not, not in this particular context, but it, what came to me was like, what's the least amount of help I can give yeah to really give them what they need and no less than that hmm. you know like to 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 think about instead of what i think we often do which is just pour all the help on and then they succeed and you're like all right good it's like what's what is the least amount i could give that that allows them to step forward because to me that them doing it is is always more empower empowering than me like pulling them along yeah and uh, maybe sometimes you need to pull someone along. If they're really, really yeah, far yeah. out. It's but, true. But again, what's the least amount? What's the least amount of intervention? And, and that's a funny thing to say, I think, especially for me. Like, I love people. I care about people. I want, part of me wants everyone to do well. Mm. And, and I also know how detrimental it would be. Like just for me in my, in my life, some of the things I appreciate most are the things that I thought I could never do that I had to do on my own. And, and the, the, the power of that. And, and if, that's, if that's out of negligence and kind of abandonment, then on a relational level, it's not so good. But if, if someone's, I know someone's there with me and, and, and I, I know they love me and I know they're there to support me 
and I'm having to do the lion's share of the work, I think that is, again, like we said earlier, it's so hard to do because we, you know, we mostly we love each other, mm-hmm. but but that uh, what appears to be nothing ends up being so helpful mm-hmm. to the people that we're connected to. Totally. I think the thing that I've been thinking about so intensely ever since I started doing facilitation training, actually, I remember coming out of this five weekend course and I had learned so many incredible tools. I was like stoked. And I like sat down and I was like, wait a minute, like how am I going to really apply anything I just learned? <laughs> and it, and it, it sparked this new journey of what would it look like to design and have the, the ultimate tension of your programs of education in general is for someone to integrate something as much as possible. Like what if that was the biggest cornerstone of it as opposed to introducing them to as much content as you can, more like an introductory approach, which is important. I think those, those are important things. But it almost feels like there's this responsibility of, yeah, you can introduce to someone and if they have enough of like the inner skills and foundation, they're willing to take the risk to actually try it and fail and then eventually integrate it. But a lot of people don't have that. In my experience, people come to my workshops and stuff, like they just don't do it. It's like such a high percentage and it can really frustrate me. But I come back to like, how much am I really creating a platform for them to practice enough and get through enough of the failure process to build enough confidence that they actually start applying it. Yeah. So that's been my new approach to, to, my, to my systems is like, what if integration was the, the, the true goal? And, and that creates a, 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 a new iterations of complexity because if you just go with what makes people feel the best at the end of your workshop, um, that may be good in the short term, but, but it, again, like you say, if it's too much information, and they don't end up using it, it won't be sustainably a part of their life. Right. And if you use too little, people will be like, we just spent four hours doing one thing. Like, what is this? Even though that might be the best in terms of actual integration. And like, how do you balance that? Mm-hmm. And then again, this is another one of those unanswerable questions, but, but it's one for me in facilitation I'm always asking. It's like, yeah. um, to include that, that people have a sentiment towards work they do, and that that sentiment will maybe bring them back to the work or not. And that that sentiment can't be, for me, it can't be the, the highest compass point because all of my past conditioning is also going to inform my sentiment. Mm. And if something is a warm, fuzzy pillow for me, that may feel nice, but it may not have me on a trajectory of my greatest growth. Yeah. So again, like how do you, to, to balance that, to sort of... And I find a lot of people, like the more things you teach them and the more they've intellectualized, they actually end up feeling like it's more of like an egoic, I'm better now and I can talk down to other people who don't know. And it, in a sense, it kind of helps them get through their life, but yeah. it's not truly... It's not it. So that's the thing is I, one of the things I've incorporated into my workshops is I call them the pitfalls. Like here's the pitfalls of this kind of work. And I really try to explicitly acknowledge the things that I know people do and I see them do all the time outside my workshops. Like here's the things and this is why they're not going to help you, you know? And then I really try to drive home integration and why integration is the most important thing. You know what? You can go to another program and it could probably, you could walk away learning 20 things and you might feel better in a way, but it, you know, I'm also trying to build a system that you only practice maybe two things, but people still feel great. That's what I'm trying to figure out. It's like, how do you still make it creative enough and still dynamic enough? 
that people really feel like they've grown, you know, and it probably means they have to need to get considerably uncomfortable in order for that growth to occur, for them to go into failure, for them to change their relationship to failure, you know, get, get really uh, clear feedback from their peers who are also in the workshop. And that's like the system I try to build. And sometimes my like whole foundational part takes almost the whole workshop, yeah. you know, and I'm like, okay, we're now we're just getting into it and it's over. But, and that's the dilemma because if you really know what any, any skill-based, any capacity-based endeavor is, is built on, is built on fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And the real fundamentals appear to have nothing to do with the complexity of the full expression of that endeavor. So like sport is a perfect example. A perfect example. People, I use all the time. People who are masterful in their sport have been essentially compulsive in the fundamentals. Yeah. They, they, they you know, they, basketball, you know, someone who, who they're always with the basketball, they're always dribbling, they're always working on their weak hand so they can go both ways just as quickly. Yeah. These are pieces that, you know, somebody wants to just dunk on somebody. Okay, great, but <laughs> but you'll never be an all-star. No matter how good you can dunk, you'll never be an all-star because everything involved in being one of the best players involves being well exceptional at those fundamental things. And and communication is not different. I agree. You know, the skill of communication. I think there's a there's a quality of presence and openness yeah. that isn't skill-based. I agree. But in terms of the skill of communication, the fundamentals are key and, and well, they um, don't they're not interesting like getting good at the fundamentals of communication are not interesting and they don't first appear to help you that's a and challenge. there might be ways to make them more creative sure. to make them funner yes and um i think that to add to that analogy if i just if you just described how basketball worked to someone r really intensely described the philosophy the depth of all of it told them how all the skills worked and then they went and played a basketball game they would suck. They would be so bad at it. Yeah. And like, I feel like that's such a key is that that's the world we're living in. Yeah. We're living in this highly intellectualized world and we haven't actually practiced to the point where it's like, you feel it. You're feeling like yeah. your free throw. You're getting your form. Someone's coaching you on your form so you actually can do it properly and mechanically. Like, I think sport, I think the brilliance of what's been invested in sports to make athletes like world champions that brilliance can be applied to personal growth. No I, re I really think so. Of course. I mean, yeah. that's all, to me, that's all sport is a metaphor for. Mm. That's why we're so interested in sport. Mm. Because it's a, it's a microcosm of, of a much deeper, bigger uh, aspect of why humanity is here. For sure. And, and, and it, it's, it's so intensified and, and, and high profile. But... Um, it really shows us what's possible. And, and it's, you know, to me, in, in many ways, just the resources aren't balanced out in a, in a way that reflects what's most important in life. Totally. And yet, it does kind of show what's, what human beings are capable of. Mm. Like when we see how much people band together for a team and support them for a Stanley Cup, like, or for, you know, it's pretty unreal. And also, and, even the riots that occur when sure, things don't go Sure, and ridiculous. Well. It, yeah. You know, it... it, it especially professional sports where no one on the team is actually from yeah. the city that you're like, it's, it's totally ridiculous when you really look at it. And, and you know, half the team has got here in the last two years, but there are a team, Boston, Philadelphia, Vancouver, like it's so funny what we do. Yeah. And then we personalize, but 
But again, I think those things meet needs in us that are mm. fundamental and that are good uh, uh, in a real way, but not not in the kind of societal context that they're being played out in. Yeah, they're they're really about um, yeah being connected to something big and meaningful, contributing to that big and meaningful thing. That that's to me, and being being deeply connected to the people that are a part of that with you. Like these are the things that I think are activated in us yeah. that, that sport touches. But again, it, it's temporary because it's not, it's not what we've made our life about. You know, we'll do that and then we'll tell someone on the street who, you know, says or does something we don't like that they're a piece of crap. And like we immediately lay down our, our sense of togetherness when it doesn't kind of fit that, that particular frame. Totally. You know, it really makes me think there could be a great program built into sports culture. Like even like, because all the things that you go through, even watching a game, like you've you've emotionally invested so much of yourself into this team, and then you know win or lose, you you stay with them. The commitment that takes, the the feeling of defeat, and like the emotions you go through, like there is a brilliant space to learn about the rest of other parts of your life. Mm. But I don't know if that platform exists. Yeah, I mean, it, I have a big background in sports, so it's it's. So I'm I. always asking myself questions around like, what would I do if I, because I, I walked away about seven years ago, and uh, if I went back, I, sort of curiosity is in me like, what would I, what would I do, or what would be meaningful to me that I would want to reengage in that whole world. <clears throat> There's another idea I had. Yeah, I love sports, man. Mm. I, I I constantly think about the correlation between sports and personal growth. It's one because I've thought about sports so much my whole life, and I think about the systems and you know even going through drills and over and over again and seeing how it affected me and how it changed. Where things became second nature, they became instinctual, mm. and then I can see how the same things happen with me with communication skills. Yeah. And like, wow! And yet there was no real platform for me to do it easily there was no streamlined process for me to f show up to a place and practice it was like i really had to put my own energy and effort into making it happen and then i'm like okay well maybe that's what we need to create we need to create enough inspiration that people had just as much passion as me to do it but then i'm like well is that really it i don't know like maybe it's more about creating an environment that makes it a lot easier access more accessible at least you know yeah i mean there's so many ways to come at making sport better or more meaningful or, or a more uh, fulfilling experience for people. Um, I mean, I was just thinking about with teams when, when I, when I've watched sport and I'm invested in a team, it's way more exciting. It's oh, way yeah. more enjoyable it's in true. a certain way. Oh, definitely. When I've watched uh, a sport where I just love the sport and I'm just wanting to watch athletes do what athletes do. I enjoy it because I love sport and I love watching what human beings are able to do in that, in that arena, but it, I'm not excited in the same way. Mm -hmm. And so that, that what I, what I connected that to was oftentimes we, we have conflict in our lives. We have opposition in our lives and we think we don't want it. We think that, if only conflict would go away, then it would all be better. But we're simultaneously recreating that conflict, setting up the exact circumstances and, and, and interactions that will make that conflict real. 
and and that we do that because without it our sense of self starts to come apart that if we've been in conflict for our whole lives that that's who we are mm -hmm. and and yeah just sport is such a funny one because it's it's meant so much to me and and it also yeah i went through a long period of time where it it lost all its meaning hmm. and um it was good for me to come come into that to to in a way stop using sport to try to deliver me something Mm. instead of it being an arena to express myself which I think is what it, at its best is what it is right. for um, it was there to try to get something from and, and I think that that distinction mm. uh, for us in any endeavor is important it's like am I am I in this because I really want to express something here or am I in this because I feel like I need to get something yeah and I think that ties back to like living a holistic lifestyle like mm. how many eggs are you putting in the basket of your NHL career you know, and I think it can do a lot because there is so much, especially if you're successful, there's so much money in it, but, and it can give you the means to maybe then build your life, but there's so many things you're woven into. So that's the tricky thing is like, how do you really, how do you really live a life where you're honoring all the parts of who you are and you're really meeting those core values, you're living into those core values. Like you, I think that's the, the self-reflection that needs to happen on an almost day-to-day -day basis because we also change and we evolve and the people around us change and evolve. I, I worked with someone a while ago and she was doing work with athletes and it was all about the transition after retirement, hmm. which it was interesting to hear her because for, especially for high-profile athletes, that is a starkly different life. Mm. Like so different in schedule, in, in recognition, in attention, in what you're giving your energy to. Mm -hmm. and, and for her, she was saying that a big part of it was identity. That if your whole yeah. life is wrapped around sport, like the egg analogy, um, what do you do when you don't have that anymore? And it's, mm -hmm. I think, a big reason why a lot of athletes get into administration and coaching and, and you know all sorts of right. behind-the-scenes sport uh, careers because or broadcasting because walking away is too painful mm -hmm. and and i think from a more human perspective i i understand the idea of diversifying so that if something falls away you have these others but even that to me feels like a it, it's not a real solution like ultimately it's all going to be taken from us so i'm i'm of i'm of the 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 thought that um if we come to a place where actually i don't need any of it I don't need to identify as any of it. And then I can have it rightly. It's like, for me, the only way for us mm. to rightly hold something is for us not to need it. So even if you have a dozen different things that are a part of your identity, need of any of them creates a kind of resistance in you to anything that threatens the, those identities. And so to, yeah, to just come home to not being somebody. Yeah. And that you're okay with that. And, and then life is yeah. like a, a, a play of expression instead of a, an attempt to, to manage or acquire something. Yeah. I mean, now I feel like we're really digging to the heart. Because it's like, is there things that we do need, essentially? Hmm. You know? Like, I hear that. I, I love, I, I hear a perspective. Because what I'm thinking into my mind was like, well, what about meditation? Hmm. Like, a meditation practice. Like, that'll never leave. I can do that literally to the day that I die. 
And yet I think it, maybe it's more of the identity. I'm a meditator. I'm a Buddhist or whatever it is that you're talking to. Yeah. It's yeah. not necessarily the practice. Nothing's off limits. To me, it's not making anything wrong that we might do or use, but what are we using it for? Right. Right. If, if I'm honestly coming to a meditation because I have a love of it, it, it it's, it's where I pour my heart into the practice is like a place where I, g- I actually give, instead of trying to use the practice to get something, the practice is my opportunity to, to pour something into my heart, my presence, the world. Like, mm. like to me, that the direction of what we're giving is, is really important, actually. Mm. Um, and then if somehow, like, if my, if my meditation practice is somehow visual and I become blind, nothing... Nothing of the deepest meaning in my life has been taken from me, right? That that practice represented something, but it's not it. Yeah. So so I you know if I'm going to build my life on something, I want it to be on something that can't be taken from me. And so um, yeah, I, I I think. Do you use it to try to get something for yourself? And that's a there's there's sophistication and subtlety there, because there's a lot of people with very meditative or spiritual identities and and they're not okay without them and that's where it becomes problematic if if you don't need it if you don't need anyone to think anything of you if you don't need to feel any certain way you just do it then you're clean Mm -hmm. kind of being honest in it but but that's so easy to to distort and then then to be in it because even like to me this is my take is even using meditation to feel better mm. is the wrong use of it. That, that meditation is about connecting into a fundamental way of being. And that the result of that isn't about feeling better, mm-hmm. even though it often does that, yeah. because it is about coming to a, an essential way of being that's nurturing and, and loving mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's, it's more about being real than it is about trying to create some preferred state of being and and that's for me that's the most honest meditation Hmm. you're doing it because it's real you're not doing it because of what it delivers you even though it delivers so much so which real to you is like it's authentically rises yeah i mean this is a tough one and i get into interesting conversations with people about it's like objective reality a lot of people aren't aren't so keen on the idea but i think of it like a baby doesn't yet have the capacity to be dishonest. Like their expression is unfiltered. It's just they're being fully what they are and they're mm-hmm. expressing from that place of being. And that even though as we grow up, we get to a place where we have a capacity to do something different than that, that doesn't mean our capacity to do it that original way is not available to us anymore. It's just like this new capacity has opened up and now we get to choose. Do I operate from that kind of from my heart inside out place mm. or do I do it more from maybe an intellectualized or a, a conditioned identity place where I'm using this vehicle of the human system to manipulate and augment my experience of reality mm. and that can be done with anything you can take the, the purest truth and then weave that into something nonsense mm-hmm. and I think it's tricky because I agree I, how much I'd love to live in a world where we could just live from impulsive of, of of our truth of being, yeah. and yet we get met with judgment you know 
we get sometimes physically abused, you know, and like really teaches us to that's not okay. Like I, I can think of how wild and, and creative and dorky I was as a kid. I was so, and my sister was such like a, she laughed and laughed and laughed and it just like got me more and more bold. And then going into middle school and having guy friends and just like every single day getting made fun of for it and just slowly that spirit, that, that impulse, like it became the very thing that like my instinctual reaction was to not do it anymore. So that's the tricky thing. I agree with you though. Yeah. And, and I think that's maybe that's the fundamental dilemma of humanity is it hurts to be real. Mm hmm period because we also want to belong and be yeah. loved and yeah and it's not the only part of the equation but it is a part of the equation it hurts to be real and a lot of the time it hurts less to not be real mm -hmm. and and so then that's our choice yeah am i going to be real and and be with the full pain of life or am i going to when i feel like it distort my real way of being to feel less pain in that moment because it because it could create a pattern that creates a lot of pain and over time yeah but the but even that it's like the patterning that takes time to develop the experience is just right now like what i'm feeling what i'm feeling is dependent on the processes that took place beforehand but but where, where i see our our real access to change is in this moment i can't change that patterning I, my nervous system is configured the way it's configured right now. Hmm. I can't hope that away. But I can shift this. And I would describe it as this, uh, a level of us or a dimension of us that isn't physical, but that fully influences the physical. So conscious awareness, whatever you want to call it. On the level of conscious awareness, I can shift my relationship with what I'm experiencing. And then the, the primary choice is open or closed. Am I open and available to what I'm experiencing or am I closed and unavailable? And that choice changes how my nervous system functions. It's um, a guy named Daniel Siegel who's done a lot of really interesting work, you know, interpersonal neurobiology. Mm -hmm. He talks about how, you know, in, in psychology they say everything psychological is biological. So... Everything that's happening in our experiential sphere is happening from kind of biological mechanisms. But somehow meditation and similar practices somehow intervene in that relationship between biological and psychological. And he calls it the plane of possibility. It's like we're actually activating different, different trajectories of, of how our biology functions, changing our psychology. And, and the research bears this out. It's like when we come to these present-oriented practices, we somehow relax in the nervous system. The, the perpetual kind of chronic stress response that we're so used to, especially in Western culture, is able to just chill out. And then the nervous system starts to behave totally differently. And um, you, you, could, you could say, well, it's the practice but I don't believe that because you could, do, uh, you could do a somatic awareness practice. You could do a breathing practice. You could do a visualization practice. You could do all these different varieties of meditation. And all of them are delivering widely the same kinds of results in the nervous system. 
So there's something underneath the practice that we can choose that is really creating the change. And for me, that's what I would describe it as. It's like this. It's not changing what is happening. It's changing how we are with what is happening. Yeah. And, and that is like the, the holy grail, really, of human transformation. Is when I'm first okay unconditionally with what's happening, everything I'm able to be in relation to life opens. And now what used to be too much isn't too much for me anymore. I think... So Sarah Payton, who studies under Daniel, Dan and many, many other interpersonal neurobiology peeps, she's like a synthesizer of all that work. And, and her body of work kind of narrows it down to what she calls resonance. So, but this is the interesting thing is that she also talks a lot about interpersonal as a component of that body of work that it's almost like you can't even develop that ability to be with what is unless someone was with you first. So there's like a part of our mirror neurons that it's almost like you internalize the human beings that you're around. Mm -hmm. You literally internalize them. So if you had like a role model who had that capacity and did that to you, you'd have the ability to internalize them and they'd live on inside of you literally and then you'd be able to do it with yourself. So that's where the interesting dynamic of being supported before you can support yourself. And she calls it resonance. So resonance is like the combination of warmth and like um, understanding with um, like precision or accuracy. So the more accurate the understanding of every little piece of what's happening inside of you and the more just general warmth, which is probably the more being state, right? Um, It's the combination of both those things that creates resonance between two human beings. And she feels like that's kind of the heart Mm-hmm. I'm guessing is similar to what you're saying. That's mm-hmm. underneath all the practices. Sure. It's resonance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't, and maybe it could be semantics. I don't fully agree with how you framed what Sarah's talking about. But, you know, I, I think what, what, we're, what we're starting to kind of dig at and uncover is that there is a, an underlying fabric of, of what being human is. And there is a, 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 a way to intervene, a way to engage it that that changes how it functions and that that's really something and that all of these things that we used to think were inherent or genetic or you know unchangeable we're seeing that almost all of them are not so that Mm -hmm. that we're able to engage in a way that transforms the fundamental function of our condition of of our system and um, uh, yeah it's like wherever the access is awesome like for sure it can come through the interpersonal and for sure some of it can come in the absence of another i've had so many experiences myself and with others where with a stream with a tree with a mountain with you know you can have these experiences that that no one else is around but you are waking up to something that is profound and real and changes you and and um yeah so to me it's like it doesn't matter what door opens. It's like you could say that those are those are other being other still something else. Sure, that the stream is another living organism, and the and the tree is another living thing. God is not Mother Nature. Like yeah. she talks about that, that can also build. Basically, like if you get really sciencey about it, it's like the synapses connecting from your amygdala to your prefrontal cortex, and it's like building the pathway between those two. So that no matter how triggered your amygdala is you have built those synapses that 
basically relate in a way that regulate. And that gets built from all the science that we're seeing through someone doing it to you. And that's how we end up building it inside our own brains. Like that's what creates the synapses, Hmm. which is so wild. She is like a phenomenal expert in that world. Like mind blowing. Her entire passion, like every single time I see her, I'll see her like a a month later and she's already learned all the newest studies that have come out. She has a monthly podcast about all the newest cool. things and yeah, yeah, I'm totally I've into never seen someone so passionate about yeah. learning how human beings work. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, that, uh, that I feel really good about yeah. the conversation. Yeah. I enjoyed went a few different places. Yeah. <laughs> as I often do. Uh, was there anything else you felt like you wanted to say or kind of just to feel complete? Hmm. There's just some piece around, I don't know, just want to acknowledge that, you know, like I'm a man and, you know, I'm young and that I, I know even a lot of the things that I've shared in this so far is, are things that I'm still learning and trying to uh, know better, learn better. Like I really want to walk with more humility in my life. I have a tendency to get to this place of like, oh yeah, and that's some of my old colonial conditioning that I'm really working on, so... Yeah, I just want to name that I'm still learning myself and I want to learn with other people, with the likes of yourself. So, Cool. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate mm-hmm. just your um, your hunger to, to walk your journey well. It's obvious in, mm. in the work you do and, and how you showed up today. And I'm not surprised, but it's been sweet to share some space and some thoughts with you. Yeah. It's good timing because the sun's starting to get in my face. Yeah. Ah. Perfect. (laughs) Thanks, man. Yeah. (laughs) You are listening to the Conversations for Change podcast with Dolphin Casper.